Uh, this coming week, Paul Massey and I will represent our parish in one of the biggest interview panels in the world. Uh, we have booked out an entire room at the International Convention Centre, I think 4,000 seats. It was done that way for COVID reasons, so we all get to not be near each other. And we will decide who will be our next Archbishop. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, 700 people from parishes all around. It's a big job. The four candidates are all fine men, and we would be well served by all of them, which makes our job even harder. So please be praying for us. The good news is that all of them are godly men who have a passionate heart to see God glorified through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, which is great news. But we do need prayer that we pick the right guy because it's a really important job. But what is it that we should be looking for as we choose a leader? What is it that's important in leadership? Well, over the last few months, we've been looking closely at the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, and we've done that focusing mainly on the life of Solomon. And he's the third king to rule. There was Saul, then there was David, and then there was Solomon. And last week was a bit of a downer, really. Because the once great Solomon, we saw him just crash and burn. We saw him wander away from the faith. And it was tragic. He turned to other gods. Can you believe that? He built the temple and then he went and built altars to other pagan gods. Because of that, the Lord said to him, you are not going to be, your, your successor after you is not going to rule all of Israel anymore. It's going to be a divided kingdom. But some of the kingdom would still remain in the family line, just sort of one or two, or depending on how you put it that way. With all of this, it, as we look at this stuff, you might think, what, who cares, 900 years before Jesus came, well, what does that mean for us as modern-day Christians? A lot. Because studying the kings of Israel teaches us about the Messiah. So the Bible is about the kingdom of God. And if you want to understand the ultimate kingdom... A king, that's Jesus, and you want to understand what he is like and what we needed out of the king and how he ticked all the boxes, you've got to check out the other kings that came before him so that when finally Jesus comes along, you go, ah, he's the man. But it takes a thousand years of dodgy kings until you get to him to realise how good he is. That's what we're doing together. We learn about the Messiah. And as we do that, we will also understand more about ourselves, how it is that we deal with the Messiah, Jesus. Because Messiah just means anointed one. Uh, that's the Hebrew version of it. The Greek version is Christos, Christ. It, it's the special name for God's anointed king. And that's what we're finding out tonight. And it all starts with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, getting all of Israel together. Chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam, that's the son of Solomon, he went to Shechem, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. Oh, that all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Here we go. He's going to take them all and lead them all and everything will be fine. Uh, and that would make sense if you thought that the normal way in which succession happened from king to king to king to king was just for it to be the kid. But they've only, we've only had three kings and the second one wasn't the son of the first one, so we're not entirely sure that's the way that God's going to make it from one to the next to the next to the next. But it seems that that's likely to be the pattern. And so Rehoboam is the guy, and he meets the people in Shechem. He meets them in Shechem. You think, hang on a second, 
You know, I may not know the Bible that well, but I'm thinking Shechem's not in the same league as Jerusalem. Isn't that where all the action is? Jerusalem's the place where you've got the temple. It's where you've got the palace. It's where just like, you know, Jerusalem. It's the place, really. And he wanders off to Shechem, 65 k's north. What's going on there? Well, there are some good memories about Shechem and there are some bad memories about Shechem. The bad memory, well, Gideon's son, Abimelech, uh, he was made king and just to sort things out, he killed his 70 half-brothers in Shechem. That's in the start of Judges. So it's got some bad memories, Shechem, especially for kings who come in and do mean things. But there also are some good memories. The big promise that God made to Abraham and said, mate, I'm going to give you the land. That was made in Shechem. So that's pretty positive. It's also where they all gathered with Joshua and said, we're going to serve the Lord. Yeehaw. That was in Shechem. So it, you know, can't be all bad. But either way, it's a bit weird it's not in Jerusalem because isn't that kind of the hub? Isn't that the palace? Isn't that sort of the main spot? Well, yeah. It makes a little bit more sense when we work out that the all Israel that's talked about there in the first, chapter, first verse, where all Israel had gathered, is almost certainly just referring to the northern kingdom. Already the split is starting to be a bit of a problem, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so the reason that he's gone up there to Shechem is it's kind of in the centre of the northern area, the northern region. That's the place to go there. And so... Nonetheless, he's there with the northern tribes. You're thinking, well, there might be some hope for God's people. Maybe he might be the guy to bring them all together. But anyway, there's another king in the wings. We met him last chapter, and here he comes again. Chapter 12, verse 2. When Jeroboam, he's the other guy, son of Nebat, heard of this, he returned from Egypt, for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. Uh, he was the guy who was one of the top dogs in the, all of Solomon's kingdom and Solomon didn't like him and wanted to kill him so he ran away to Egypt and on the way he found out that he was actually going to be one of the kings. So that sort of all's happening there. But he hears that Rehoboam's got together all of the northern tribes and they're about to make him king and he's like, hang on a second, what's the deal? But more than that, they, the northern tribes, want him there as well. And so verse 3, the leaders of Israel, and that's the, probably the northern ones, they summons him. They said, Rehoboam, oh, sorry, Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Interesting, isn't it? So they're the northern bits. All the northern people are there. They get the guy who's Solomon's son to come up there, and then they get the other king as well. A bit of a showdown. But right there, the northern tribe asked Jeroboam to join them. They asked Jeroboam to join them. Now, he's stood up to Solomon in the past. Maybe he's going to stand up to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, as well. And so they gather with Rehoboam and they say this to him. Your father, Solomon, was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labour demands and the heavy taxes that your father imposed on us and then we will be your loyal subjects. They're saying, your dad was mean. We'll follow you as king if you're not mean to us. How about that? But there's actually a little bit more to what was said. The NIV in this case is, is useful. 
Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labour and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. I mean, it says the same, means the same thing as the other translation, but you get to see that there's a, the word yoke there is, is used. You know, that, that's what was stuck around the, the heads of the bullocks, and they kind of, you know, they pulled things along. It was the heavy thing that, that was around their necks, and it, and, it, and it sort of came to mean a big burden of work, like really being flogged to go to work. Interesting, isn't it? Because when you hear about the great days of Solomon, you think, oh, it was just happy days for everybody. The wonderful days of Solomon. Wealth, happiness, lots of wives. Well, whatever it was, Solomon at least. Well, all this stuff's happening. But it doesn't seem that it was good for everybody. Behind the scenes of this massive effort, a whole bunch of people were having a really hard time. Solomon had put a heavy yoke on them. They were victims of forced labour. Go to work. And he taxed a whole lot of their money. So they're thinking, hang on, didn't I get more money than that? No, it's gone to Solomon. Really? It was a burden to them that time. They were like an oxen. They were like a working animal. It's like they had a big, huge yoke around them, whipped by the master. And the subjects cried out to him and then to his son for relief from this heavy burden. You think if only there was a way that you could get the blessings of the king without the heavy yoke. If only there was a king of God's people who could offer a lighter yoke. Does that ring a bell? Matthew 11, Jesus said, and you wonder if he had this in mind as he said it. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. I reckon there's a reasonable chance that Jesus was thinking about 1 Kings 12 when he said that to his disciples. They understood that to follow many of the kings of the past was a slog. It was hard work. It wasn't pleasant at all. If you wanted to get the good stuff out of the kingdom, you had to really work for it. And it was a burden you couldn't cope with. And Jesus comes along and says, well, I'm kind of like that king, but nothing like that king. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heaven burdens, and I will give you... That is one of my favourite Bible verses. It's such a beautiful way of describing what it means when you come to Jesus. It's like if you've ever been hiking and you've got a pack that's ridiculously heavy and and then someone says, just swap with mine for a while because you're a bit of a wimp. Yeah, okay, no worries, I'm happy to take that. Take my pack. And you, oh, the shoulders are light. It's a wonderful blessing. I haven't got this in my, my notes, but there was a time that we were hiking. Mandy had her pack on. It was really hard times. We We stopped. A mate of ours who was in the team, he went forward and he found the place that needed to go. He came back for us and he said, Mandy, let me take your pack for you. This is years and years ago. And he took her pack for her and her shoulders were light and she was able to walk. It happened to be ski touring in the middle of the night and we were lost. In, but anyway, that's another story of our dinner. Uh, but to have the burden taken off her shoulders was a beautiful thing. And so it was Jesus would use these very words to describe this. He offers to take our heavy yoke and our burden and in him is true rest. 
if you are flogging yourself to try and get right with God, if you're flogging yourself to get, get hope for the future, if you're flogging yourself to deal with those sins that you just cannot wipe away from your hands and your heart, stop flogging yourself. Come to Jesus. He says, I'll take your heavy pack. I'll take that weight upon your shoulder. I'm not like Solomon was. I am the guy who, has, who will take your heavy load. So how does Solomon's son, Rehoboam, react? Well, he says in verse 5, uh, give me three days to think this over and then come back for my answer. Right, yeah? Can I uh, ask a friend? So he goes off, and he, which is good, I think, because he's a new king. He's thinking, I maybe don't, know, maybe don't know everything. Maybe I need to go and consult with some wise people who know the whole king thing. They know what I should be doing and all of this. And it turns out that we read in verse 6 that King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counselled his father Solomon. Ah, that's good. What is your advice, he asked? How should I answer these people? This is good. Rehoboam, smart guy. Go and speak to the oldies, especially the oldies who were around with Solomon, who was the wisest guy of of everywhere. He's the guy. Ask them the question. Find out what they say. I've learned that it's good to ask older people. And you get good answers. You don't always get the answer you want, but you get good answers. I've just turned 50. I probably am an older person by now, but there's still some of you older, and I'll keep asking you for the questions, and you keep telling me when I'm an idiot. But, But the point is, smart people ask older people. And it seems that Rehoboam's done that. Smart guy Rehoboam so far. And what do the old dudes say? Verse 7. The older counselors replied, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today... And give them a favourable answer. They will always be your loyal servants. Smart guy. Smart move. Here's the plan. You need to serve the people. You want to be the best king of God's people? What do you do? You've got to serve them. Which is an odd thing to do. Because normally when a king comes around, or a governor general, or prime minister or something, you serve them. You know, if, if Scott Morrison popped into church here and there he is there, I, I, I wouldn't put him on orderlies tonight. I'd be saying, Scotty, grab a seat, mate. We'll get you some meatballs and spaghetti. It's going to be awesome. You just take a seat. What can we get for you? I wouldn't be saying, uh, quick, grab a plate. No, no, to wash it up, thanks. I wouldn't expect our king to be serving us. But that's exactly what it is that these old guys tell Rehoboam. You've got to be a servant king. It's a weird thing to do, but it's quite smart. Servant leadership is sort of, you know, the new cool kid's way of doing leadership these days. I'll tell you where they got it from. Mark 10, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different if you're my follower. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be the slave of everyone else. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That is what smart kings do. It's what good kings do. It's what Jesus the King did and does. And isn't it funny, 900 years before Jesus walks on the earth, the wise old guys say to Rehoboam, 
I tell you how to do this king thing, right? Serve your people. You serve them, they'll follow you. Everyone's a winner. And so, with that in mind, verse 8, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men. And instead he asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and were now his advisers. Oh, he grabs his mates from school, the ones he's given jobs to. He reckons they'll have a much better idea than those old fogies. I reckon they've got a clear insight into the world. They'll know what to do. They'll understand king stuff much, much better than those guys. What are we going to do, guys? What do we do with this grumbling? Well, he says to them, What's your advice? How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? Guys, I went through school together. You know, we're together. Hey, we're doing this king thing together. What do I do? What do you reckon they're going to say? Do you reckon they're going to say, servant king? Do that servant leadership thing. It's, you know, Harvard Business Review saying it's the way to go these days. You reckon it's going to say all that stuff? You reckon those young punks are going to say, go and do the, the serving thing? The... Verse 10. The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want to light a burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. <laughs> my father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Yeah, that's a great idea. Whoa, high five, chest pump. You can imagine it. The younger men advised them to make life harder. That'll sort them out. What could possibly go wrong? And his mates tell Rehoboam to say, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. What does that mean? What does that mean? Literally, in the original language, it just says, my little thing is thicker than my father's thighs. Yeah, it's pretty much what you think it is. Uh, The learned scholar John Woodhouse says in his commentary, in context, this is almost certainly a coarse reference to the male organ. With gutter humour, they suggested Rehoboam flaunt his macho potency. End quote. Just imagine it. He gets together with his mates. What do you do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Whoa, yeah. I don't need to tell you anymore. Stupid masculine arrogance. But you can see how the temptation of arrogant power is just so great. Just put your fist down. Tell them who's boss. That's what kings do. You're a king for crying out loud. Do the king thing. Put them in their place. Squash them down. It'll be fine. And so he's got a choice to make. Does he do the old boring old guy thing where it's just like, I'll go there and be nice to them. Roll over and say, I'm sorry. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Or go in there and whatever. You know, does he go down there and squash him? Because that'll surely work for sure. Yeah. Will he serve or will he make them serve him? Will he serve or will he be served? Verse 12. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to hear uh, Rehoboam's decision just as the king had ordered. And what happens? Verse 13. But Rehoboam 
spoke harshly to the people, for he rejected the advice of the older councillors and he followed the counsel of the younger advisers. He told the people, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. He followed the advice of the younger punks. Fortunately, he didn't include any of the crude words as he stood behind the microphone, but that's a probably a good thing because if this all goes bad, then he's going to look extra stupid if he's done the extra macho stuff and it falls down. But the point in all of this is he threatens to treat the people in the kingdom even more harshly. Rehoboam makes them serve him harder. As their king, he will demand more from them, not less. It was, as Sir Humphrey would say, an extremely courageous decision. But it was a decision that happened according to the will of God. Verse 15. So the king paid no attention to the people. This turn of events was the will of the Lord, for it fulfilled the Lord's message to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh. All of this stuff with Rehoboam is happening because the Lord had planned for it to happen. The Lord wanted Jeroboam to be the king of the north. It was already sorted. It fulfilled what the Lord had planned. And it's a fresh reminder that God is in control of absolutely everything. He's not the author of evil, but he's using evil to enact his will. He's not sitting on the sideline waiting to see what happens, waiting to when he's got to run on the field with stretchers. He is active in every single way. Don't buy the lie that says that God is, is, is reactive and passive because that's a wimpy God that is not the God of the Bible. God is active in everything. Much, much better way of understanding the universe because you give humans too much free will and all this kind of stuff, then in the end of the time, it is just going to go bad and nobody will follow God. We need full free will, as the Bible speaks, we also need to have a sovereign God who's in control of everything. The two go together and it makes sense. But back to the story, we see what happens when tough guy Rehoboam stood up to the grumbly northern Israelites. Verse 16, when all Israel realised that the king had refused to listen to them, they responded, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. And so the people of Israel returned home. And you've got to say, well, that escalated quickly. They had no interest at all in following a tough guy king, a tough guy king who would threaten the people. And so the split in the kingdom happens right here, right now. Verse 17 but Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. Rehoboam is going to look after the ones around Jerusalem, down the bottom. And Jeroboam is going to look after the northern ones. But Rehoboam hasn't given up yet. He's a pretty tough, macho guy, really, isn't he? And so he's got a plan. We read in verse 18, King Rehoboam sent this guy Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labour, to restore order. But the people of Israel stoned him to death. 
When this news reached King Rehoboam, he quickly jumped into his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. Run away, run away. And so off he went. Back in chapter 4 of 1 Kings, we read about Adoniram. He was in charge of forced labour. He's the guy who would crack the whip. And so Rehoboam thinks, perfect, I'll send this old guy who used to look after all of the forced labour, cracking the whip, I'll send him in, he'll win everybody over. Apparently not. They stone him to death. And Rehoboam is humiliated. Humiliated. Verse 19. And to this day, the northern tribes of Israel have refused to be ruled by a descendant of David. Tough guy Rehoboam scampers back home with his tail between his legs. And the northern tribes hear of the humiliation. And so they get the king they want. Verse 20, when the people of Israel learned of Jeroboam's return from Egypt, they called an assembly and made him king over all of Israel. So only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the family of David. There it is. There it is. Jeroboam is made king of the north and there's only one little tribe left as a descendant of David. And so Rehoboam gets back to Jerusalem. What does he do? He says, okay, well, let's just have a peaceful life. No, he's got a bit more spunk in him. Verse 21, when Rehoboam arrived at Jerusalem, he mobilized the men of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 selected troops, to fight against the men of northern Israel and to restore the kingdom to himself. That'll do it. We'll send in the armies. It'll be great. We'll sort it all out. But even though it's his arrogance that's led to the, the failure, it seems that he just, you know, he's fallen in a hole and he just keeps digging until the Lord intervenes. Verse 22 to 24. But God said to Shemaiah, the man of God, the prophet, tell Rehoboam, of son of Solomon, you know, the one, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Go back home. For what has happened is my doing. And so, smart, they obeyed the message of the Lord and they went home as the Lord had commanded. That's good news. Because it was going to be a bloodbath. Fortunately, the Lord prevents a war at this stage between north and south. And he says to them, actually, I'm behind all of this. Don't go up there and send an army. It's just going to be more embarrassing. Just go home. Go home. And so the kingdom's divided with Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the south. And it means that Jerusalem is no longer the capital city of all of Israel. How sad. You've been following Jerusalem and its rise, we see. Oh, that's a bit sad. And so what happens is they need a new capital city. So we read in verse 25, the Jeroboam then built up the city of Shechem, that's where he was before, in the hill country of Ephraim, and it became its capital and later he went and built up the town of Peniel as well. Shechem becomes the capital of the north. Shechem, Jerusalem. It's a bit sad, really, isn't it? It's all broken down. And so now Jeroboam's learning what it means to be king. But he's a bit insecure, Mr. Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, because in verse 26 he thought to himself, unless I'm careful the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. He's insecure. He's watching his back. He's thinking, I might have 10 twelfths or 10 11th, whatevers, um, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to stay king if I'm not careful. 
And so he realises that the problem is that they will all want to go down to Jerusalem and worship. Because it's a temple, of course. That's where the centre is of all the worship. And so they all go back down there and they see Jerusalem and say, oh, Jerusalem, it's a lovely place. We forgot how nice it is. Oh, and they've got a nice king as well. And it'll all go back to how it was. And Jeroboam's thinking, nah, that's not going to happen. So, verse 27, he comes up with a cunning plan. When these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They'll kill me and make him their king instead. That's what he's worried about. So he says, verse 28, so on the advice of his counsellors, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Hurrah! Smart guy, Jeroboam. You idiot. Really? Oh, boy. And he doesn't just go for one golden calf. Have a go with two. Two I see your golden calf, Aaron. Ah, let's go for two. What could possibly go wrong? See, if you know a bit about the Old Testament, you'll know that there was a time when God's people made a golden calf and they worshipped that. It went really, really bad. Incredibly bad. Jeroboam mustn't have read that bit in the Bible. He thinks, I'll make two golden calves. It'll be fine. And he, Aaron takes, makes one golden calf and Jeroboam doubles the stupid. Really? But why? Why would he try and make a fake version of the Lord? We read in verse 29 that he placed these calf idols in Bethel down at the bottom and at Dan at either side of his kingdom. Right. Here's why. Convenience. The true and living God's got his temple down in Jerusalem, but it's a long way down there. You've got to cross a border, show your passport, all that stuff, and you might, eh, it's just not good. We're going to make it so simple for you. Convenient places, convenient times. We'll give you one at the bottom, one at the top, and, well, so easy. What he did is he gave them a safe, simple way to worship God. He domesticated worship so people could go to God without any hassle. And now the North had a convenient way to worship. A convenient way to worship. As I was preparing this, it just reminded me how much this is like a lot of versions of so-called versions of Christianity. I reckon if we can just make Christianity a bit more accessible, if we can just make being a Christian a little bit easier and a bit less stressful. In fact, you become a Christian and we'll actually make it that you can have more wealth and more success and you'll be healed of whatever is hurting you and everything will be fixed up. And we'll make it so convenient for you that you can do your old life, become a Christian, no one will notice anything's changed and how easy will that be? In the end, those versions of Christianity are just fakes, as fake as these two golden calves. And whether it's two golden calves by Jeroboam or it's the prosperity gospel or whatever it is that you might want to roll out as a soft-serve way of trying to come to God, it makes God angry. Here's verse 30. But this became a great sin, for the people worshipped the idols, travelling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. It's a great sin. And in the final verses today, I'll read out the last few 
we see that he went even further. Verse 31. Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and he ordained priests from the common people, those who were not from the priestly tribe of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a religious festival in Bethel held on the 15th day of the 8th month in imitation of the annual festival of shelters at Judah. That's a bit of a cheap knockoff, right? And there at Bethel, he himself offered sacrifices to the calves that he'd made and he appointed priests from the pagan shrines that he'd made. So on the 15th day of the 8th month, a day that he himself had designated... Jeroboam offered sacrifices on the altar at Bethel. He instituted a religious festival for Israel and he went up to the altar to burn incense. What does he do? He goes copy and paste, although not a good copy and paste, kind of like the cheap watches that might have the right name on them, but you know that for five bucks, really? Uh, This is what we're getting here, a cheap knockoff of the real religion. Jeroboam makes a fake copy of the Lord's religion. Fake shrines, fake priests, fake festivals. And in time, this king will be shown to be a fake. A fake idiot. And that's where the chapter ends. A divided kingdom with two kings. And a whole lot of people worshipping a fake version of the true God. This is what happens when leaders lead badly. Rehoboam had a choice. Serve or be served. What does he do? He does the idiot thing. He thinks, I will squash them and they will serve me. Idiot. They run away. They leave him. Gone. Idiot. It shows us more and more that they needed the true king. And it shows us more and more that we need Jesus. We don't need Rehoboam. Uh -uh. We don't need Jeroboam. No way, thanks. We need Jesus. And tonight we've just seen a few glimpses of what it will be like when the true king comes along. The one who offers us the lightest yoke possible. The one who did not come to be served, but to serve. And as we hear this reminder, let us come to The radical Jesus, the Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray.